Welcome to the Acting Asian Podcast, diving into a journey of acting as an Asian, as well as moments we find ourselves performing Asian. Well, hello. Hi, Cindy. Tell me a little bit of an introduction of who you are. Yeah, I'm Cindy Tsai. I'm a Chinese and Taiwanese American girl who um, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and now I currently live in New York City, and I'm in my last year of undergrad at Pace University. Um, I go to school for musical theater and I want to perform, I want to produce, I want to write, I want to do a lot in my career. So that's kind of the trajectory that I'm on as an Asian American artist in this industry. What was it like kind of first growing up in LA? And tell me a little bit of how it was like sparking your interest in art as well. Yeah, so I guess I I always grew up in my parents' You know, I have two siblings and my parents would put us all in like these all these extracurriculars just to see what stuck. Right. And um, none of me or my siblings are very athletic people. So like none of the sports stuck. Um, but for all of us, music always stuck. And we, you know, we did the classic Asians doing piano lessons or violin or like my sister played violin and I played piano and um, my brother played the flute and I, yeah, I, I always loved piano. I was just like classically like being trained. Um, and then I like quit when I was in middle school. It was too much. Um, and then I started doing ballet when I was like five years old. And it just stuck. I did it for like 10 years before I quit. And it, that was like kind of my introduction into art but and also I took like visual art classes which also like fell off the radar soon after elementary school um and I didn't really get into theater until like my first or second year of middle school and it was just an extracurricular like wasn't I never made a conscious decision to like become serious about it it was more of just like a default that happened um but my parents were always very supportive of me going into the arts um they did always obviously like push math and science and wanted me to like I think go into those careers but um I think once they saw that art was the thing that made my brain click that they realized oh like I guess she's going to be an artist and both of my parents are architects so they have a good mixture of like the math and science part and like the creative part of their brains. And it's, it's definitely really interesting. My sister, um, went into like STEM stuff. She's like neuroscience. Um, and like she went to MIT, like she fulfilled all of their immigrant dreams of like their, um, you know, their children being really successful in America. And I think that gave me a little more leeway because she's older than me. Um, so like when I came around and I was applying to colleges and telling them, I think I want to apply for art school. Um, they were completely supportive and went through the whole audition process with me and everything. So 
Yeah, I would say that's how it was growing up. Like I just was thrown at everything and like saw what stuck and it was only like the artistic things and the creative things that stuck. Yeah. That's really cool. And I'm curious. So you said that you have a brother and also a sister and your sister's older than you. Is your brother also older or younger? He's older. So I'm the youngest. Um, How does it feel to be like the youngest kid in the whole family? Um, Like I said, I feel like my parents like learned a lot, like (laughs) raising my siblings. So they, I definitely feel lucky that they were like easier on me um, when it came to grades or, you know, like what career I was going to go into. So yeah, I I just feel really lucky and they aren't typical, you know, they're stereotypical, like tiger mom or like those tiger parents. Um, I feel like while they had some of those qualities, especially when like raising my sister and my brother, like by the time it got to me, like they'd become a little more open to, to other career paths and things like that. So yeah, I feel really lucky. Yeah, I totally relate because I feel like I'm the youngest. But although I feel like with my parents, they're really they're trying to keep control of me because compared to my brother, who's two years older than me, he's a lot more like tame than I am. So you mentioned in terms of finding a sense of like you really enjoyed pursuing arts and also specifically like deciding to do performing. What was the reason as to why you chose into auditioning for musical theater? Were there any works or films or things that really inspired you to kind of go into that endeavor? Yeah, I think our generation specifically growing up, like I I remember seeing this report that there was such an influx of musical theater applicants after you know, High School Musical, all the whole trilogy, and also Glee. Like, it was like these, like, movie, TV musicals that brought a lot of awareness to, like, the theater, musical theater industry. And so I feel like a lot more people started getting into it. Um, so I, I definitely would say, I know it's not original, but, like, those things definitely probably influenced me. Um, and I, I mean, I never was, like, a traditional, like, I love, like golden age musical theater like I didn't know anything about that I loved pop music and I liked like yeah just like jazz and blues and rock music and it was all like that is the direction that Broadway was also going in so I I remember when I was like getting into theater I only liked like new musical theater writers like people that nobody knew like Adam Guan and Uh, Ryan Scott Oliver there were people that you know I just gravitated towards and like I gravitated towards their work um yeah so I would say that like I said theater wasn't like a conscious decision of like I'm gonna do this for the rest of my life it's just it was a hobby and extracurricular and then I started just doing community theater in Pasadena and realized that I really loved it and that you know, I was getting recognition for it. And I was like, oh, am I, am I like good at this? Like, should I try to do this professionally? But it it wasn't. And then when it got to the point of college auditions, my, my parents and I were just like, what am I going to major in? Like, I don't know. I, I want to keep doing theater. So it really, I always say it just fell into my lap <laughs> and 
there are some days I wake up now and I'm like, did I really choose this or did it choose me? And I'm, yeah, it's, I'm just on, on the ride, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's just wonderful. Like to kind of just explore it as like a hobby and then later realize like, this is something that you want to do. But even I can understand with like thinking about it, like, oh, is this, did this choose me or did I just kind of gravitate to it just naturally? Um, but yeah, and I'm curious, so you auditioned into all these like performing arts schools. How was it once you later got accepted um, and the whole experience um, kind of coming in as like a college student and really eager to learn more about the performing arts? It was it was a huge shift in like reality check, I would say. I, you know, I, I was very pressured because I auditioned for colleges twice, as you obviously know, but like the first time I did it, I was very pressured into being exactly like the perfect musical theater girl, right? The jewel tone dress, the nude heels, the, you know, perfect every hair in place. And I'm going to sing a soprano song and a belting song. And I'm going to, you know, it's, it was very like cookie cutter. This is what you have to be. And Obviously, going into college auditions, I was a lot of the time the only Asian person at every audition and was like, oh, man, this is this feels weird. I mean, I even when I did theater in L.A., I was like one of few Asians as well, Um, even though San Gabriel Valley has a huge population of Asians. It's just that they didn't go into the arts or they didn't go into theater. So. Yeah, when I auditioned the first time around, I definitely did not present myself like exactly authentically who I am. I was presenting something that I thought people want. Um, You know, a the all these incredible theater artists that I look up to were white women. So I was like trying to emulate their energies when I like walked into a room and I realized that doesn't work because they, because I can't identify with them and their experience. So yeah. And then obviously I auditioned a second time after um, my first year at Emerson and I, and I only auditioned for two schools the second time around. Um, And I remember just like saying like, oh, fuck it. I just have to be myself. And I'm so tired of trying to fit this mold. And I remember I (laughs) wore like pastel pink jeans to my audition. And I was like the only girl who wasn't wearing a dress. And, um, and I just like, and I owned myself in, in the two auditions and I, and they both went really well. So it was like, yeah, I, I really like grew into myself versus trying to make myself someone else. And obviously as a 17 year old, you're like, what, like, what do I do to make sure I can get into school, even though you don't even really know who you are? (laughs) I really relate to what you're saying with that, because I actually, in my senior year of high school, I flew with my mom from Taiwan to New York to audition for schools. And I was so shocked by the amount of people that looked like they wore the same things and they wore the same clothes. And I was like, oh my God, like, I don't know if I really fit in here. And I think that definitely made me think of, whoa, am I actually like, do I deserve to be here in this certain space? Because I do not look the way as other people do. Um, But I definitely also relate with like the second time you auditioned because 
I ended up not getting into the, any of the auditions that I've um, auditioned for. And I later re-auditioned again. And at that point, I was like, it doesn't really matter. I don't really care anymore if I just don't get in. But at least I know, like, I tried my best as I can. And yeah, eventually that got into it. I don't think you've mentioned the school that you were in originally, Emerson. Could you, like, share me your experience on being in Emerson? And did you find, like, the classroom environment to be comfortable to you and also supportive? Yeah, Emerson was... I feel like at this point, Emerson is like a fever dream. Like it was, I spent a year there and I was 18 and I'm like so different now, but I was the only Asian woman in my program. One of two Asian people, one of my best friends, Max Boone was the other Asian and he's, um, he's great. But yeah, they were, there were two of us and I was the only Asian woman and it was the whole program. And in our program had about like 65 people in it and it and there were like probably seven people of color. It was, and it was a huge culture shock. I had grew up in Los Angeles and been surrounded by people who look like me, people who don't look like me. And, you know, I, I got to Emerson and it was like a monolith. Everybody was white. (laughs) And, um, so it, I definitely felt a need to prove myself every day, like prove that I belonged there, that I deserve to be there. And um, yeah, I would say some of the classrooms were were really comfortable. Some of them really were, um, which is not a part of my experience that people ask about a lot because there were great parts of Emerson, um, except people just know like the bad parts for me. But yeah, there there were some incredible professors that I had. Um, I had my first Asian American professor at Emerson, um, Ted Hewlett. He's, he's half Vietnamese. So yeah, it was, it was great to have him. And then there were some spaces that were not so comfortable and I felt like I was being seen as really one dimensional and, um, you know, I would be assigned a certain material or, you know, pushed in a certain direction or, um, even like people, some of my classmates would even be bitter towards me sometimes because of, because for some reason people think that, you know, it's so trendy to be diverse and like to, you know, to hire POC actors when they don't realize what it actually feels like, which is tokenism. But all they see is an opportunity that they don't get. So I was like dealing with both of those things and like dealing with people being bitter towards me because not that I was even getting more opportunities than other people. It was just that there were a lot of people who were the same over there and like presented the same and I was different. And so some, there were times when I did stand out in spaces and yeah, I would say I made some incredible friends at Emerson that are still my best friends to this day. And ultimately I had to leave because the education was not going to cater to what I needed. And it, I also think the program itself wasn't a good fit for me. They were very rooted in the traditional American musical theater 
and, you know, saying you can't sing a pop song until your senior year. And like, it was very like that type of structure. Um, and just, it wasn't what I was interested in. And then there was also harm that was done by several professors. So yeah, that in a nutshell is my Emerson experience. I will never, ever regret going there for a year. Like I said, I made incredible friends. I got to live in Boston for a year and I, I did receive an education. Um, and yeah, like I said, there's, there were pros and cons to all of it. And ultimately it has made me who I am today. So I'm very grateful for that, especially because I didn't, so I grew up in Los Angeles and I I didn't really have a huge idea of like racism towards Asians. I think in school we were always taught about racism towards black people in the black community in America. And growing up with people all around me, I was like I'm I wasn't even a minority when I was going to school, going to high school and stuff. So it was a huge culture shock when I went to Emerson and like realizing I am a person of color and a racial minority. And um, ultimately it shifted my entire purpose as an artist because before I just wanted, I think I just wanted to kick my face and sing high and like just have one of those careers. But now every single artistic decision I make is directly informed by my identity and, you know, furthering and uplifting BIPOC voices and underrepresented communities. So that's why I, I will never regret going to Emerson because that brought out the purpose in me as an artist. Thank you so much for sharing like those positive things that you've happened to learn in Emerson, because I feel like I guess we'll bring in like the article that is also kind of how I got to know a little bit more about your experience in Emerson. Um, the article was called The Nuances of Racism in Theater School through um, the Emerson Power. When I read it, I was like, whoa, this is something that I felt coming like just in different variations coming into performing arts. Um, and also when you are in a predominantly white space, too. So I see Emerson and Pace as like two completely opposite programs and that does not mean Emerson bad pace good it just means different forms of white supremacist institutions um so yeah so pace did a really great job of marketing themselves to me as we numbers wise are the most diverse musical theater program in the nation and that was indisputable like that was true and so I remember going to my audition and seeing Asian students there seeing other Asian auditionees with me and I was like oh yeah I think this is it like I think you know it's New York City and I just felt very you know, just not alone, which is what I felt at Emerson a lot. It was like me and Max just like clinging on to each other. Like, is everything okay? Um, and yeah, so I came into Pace, I would say with 
with naive expectations. You know, I was still 19 um, and I was just really excited to go from like a very, very white space to a less white space, Um, still majority white, but at least there were people who looked like me that I could talk to. And yeah, like I said, they did a great job of marketing themselves to me. And, you know, even in my audition room, um, Amy Rogers, the head of the program at the time, was like asking me why I was leaving Emerson. And, you know, I had that sort of uncomfortable conversation and said, like, I feel very alone and tokenized there. And um, so I felt this pressure when I got in that it was like Pace was, quote, saving me saving me from this racist institution. This this woke institution is going to save this Asian girl from a racist institution. And that was very much the narrative that was spread around the program as well. Um, even other students had a great pride of like, well, this is the institution that Cindy transferred to, therefore this is the perfect institution or the perfect program, right? So... Yeah, I would say I had a lot of naive expectations because of all of that pressure that was put on to, you know, a an article that went like a little bit viral and like it was like weird to think that like people who I didn't know were reading my story and then, you know, everyone knew that I was transferring the pace and then there was like an immense amount of pressure of like, well, I hope she's happy there. Um, or like, I hope she gets what she needs there. And I put that pressure on myself too. And I was like, yeah, this is the perfect fit. You know, I, and financially as well, I was like, well, I'm transferring schools and I have to make sure that my education is still worth it. That, you know, my parents are helping to pay for such an expensive education and it has to be worth it. So I put all of that pressure on myself to be like, pace has to be the place for me and it has to be perfect. Um, yeah. And as we all know, (laughs) that didn't happen. (laughs) Wow. Like, I don't know. It just, to have that amount of pressure to be put onto you because you decided to go onto this whole new program and you literally have two institutions and people that are kind of like looking at you saying like, okay, you, I don't know, like, I guess maybe you're kind of I don't know if it would be the word, but like you are kind of tokenized in the way of like, oh, this is your own individual experience and you have to be the one who has to make sure that you are better in this better place because it's this is a better juxtaposition. And it's like, that is, wow, I can't imagine how much pressure that could be given to you. And I guess that will lead to our next question, um, next topic, which is talking a little bit about CR Trues too, um, to give a little context, if you could, um, about the CR Trues movement, um, and also kind of the inspirations that has happened. Like, what are some certain actions that you are also currently taking um, and participating in the CR Trues movement as well? Yeah. I mean, just to go off what you said, it was, it was like a big pressure of like, everybody likes the happy ending, especially when, when your story goes to people you don't even know and it reaches people like they, 
it's it's like every reality TV show we see. It's like you you see you watch The Bachelor and you see the finale and you're like, well, I really just hope they stay together. And when they break up, it's like, oh no, because it's like we just want the happy ending. Um, that's how I felt. It was like everybody's like, well, pace well pace will be better to you, or like even in my first semester at Pace, they're like, thank goodness you transferred here, right? And I'm like, yeah, um, <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, so CR Truths, just my my whole heart. I, yeah, freaking love CR Truths. It it was in the making for, for like a decade now. Um, it, you know, so many experiences that, were suppressed and didn't really see the light of day until this past summer when George Floyd was murdered and our our like alumni page for the Pace Musical Theater um, program sort of erupted in all of these really, really tough experiences for anybody to read um, from alumni as, as far as a decade ago. Um, and up until now. And it was, it, it's been a long time coming and I'm just really grateful that I'm part of it. Um, as like, I feel like, like I'm a current student and like part of like the younger generation that's part of it. And basically what happened was these, these stories erupted on, on our alumni page and it was a private group. And ultimately our stories were still being suppressed because they were being ignored and ignored by faculty, by administration, um, just completely being suppressed. So Alex Sanders, who is the found the founder of CR Truths, he created these affinity spaces for all of the students of color to, um, to just hop on a Zoom and like spend hours together to just share our stories with each other, which is something we had never done. Um, just share exactly what our experience at Pace was. Even though we were all going through it together, it's like no one, no one would talk about it. So that's how it started. And then, um, and then Alex and we have a whole leadership team. There's about 10 of us. Um, we, we created this platform and it's now going to be, it's, it's telling musical theater students stories from Pace specifically. And then it's going to also branch out to the other programs in Pace Performing Arts. And then hopefully after that, we're going to tackle the industry at large, the theater industry, the entertainment, uh, entertainment industry, and, you know, actors and stage managers and everybody dancers will get to tell their stories um that most likely have been suppressed for a very long time so yeah but CR Truths is really fighting the fight right now especially with Pace University the institution um there is like a full-on <laughs> war going on I would say <laughs> and um it's it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see the turns and the twists that it takes um, throughout the next few years and like to see if any like lasting changes are implemented into 
all of the programs in pace performing arts. I see. To see that amount of change to happen during this time where we have a bunch of racial injustice that is going on, and also to see within the school and specifically the performing arts program and the musical theater program to see such a big change and a big movement, I think that really has inspired a lot of people, including myself, to voice our experiences that we have felt being in like the classrooms and being in spaces where we felt like, oh, like we didn't like belong here. Could you share a little bit more of like your experiences being in like the musical theater program at Pace that you find like a little bit integral to the experiences that you had. Yeah, I'm, wow, I mean, I, I've i gone here for like two years now. So I, I transferred into the program as a sophomore. So I didn't have to do any extra school, which was like really great because money. Um, and I mean, it's it's tough to say. Like there, there were a lot of microaggressions and there always will be. Um, and just instances where it was like at Emerson, I felt like I was being misunderstood and shoved into a box. But at Pace, I felt like I was being like fetishized and tokenized into spaces, once again, that people wanted me to be in, but I wasn't necessarily. Um, and so... I would say that like there were many instances of like I said microaggressions stereotyping um and disrespect from faculty and administration like it was it was tough and the toughest part was that for two years I didn't really acknowledge it I was in denial because I transferred here and I just wanted it so so badly to be better. And so I put that pressure on myself to suppress these instances and um, all the way up until May, you know, or, or the end of May when um, things started erupting in our in our alumni page and then I had to reflect of like, oh yeah, there, there were actually things almost daily that were happening to me. Um, specifically, I founded a night of color at Pace um, in in the musical theater program with a couple of my friends, and that was like always like my big plan. It was like my dream. Um, when when I was leaving Emerson, I was like, what? Like I'm gonna go to Pace and I'm gonna I'm gonna found this program or night or cabaret that will just feature people of color and that's going to be like my imprint on pace and I mean I think it has been like uh, and I thought I was that was going to be the only thing but now they're see our truths um but yeah that getting that on its feet was I'm not gonna lie it was really tough because of pushback from faculty and administration and you know, feeling like really helpless as a young artist of color, as many young artists of color feel, feeling like you have no initiative and no agency to do what you want to do and that every roadblock will be put in your way. And that was pretty much the case for both years that I 
directed it, um, it was really, really tough to, to engage with the faculty and like, and, and actually receive what we needed to make sure that the production could get on its feet. And what I think the thing that's, that hurt the most was that we were being neglected or sidestepped, um, when we needed resources, but when, you know, when Pace MT auditions would happen, um, the faculty would be like, "A night of color, this is a reason you should come to Pace and like, um, marketing us and, you know, capitalizing off of the work that we had done, but neglecting us when we needed help. Um, I remember specifically the head of Pace Performing Arts said this to me. He said, um, a night of color is the best postcard for Pace University. And that has always stuck with me. And he said it multiple times in multiple meetings. And that stuck with me because I realized what I was and what my project was to Pace Performing Arts or Pace University. It was, it was another way to make money. It was another way to um, or money, actual money and also social capital. Like they wanted to plaster this all over to make sure that people knew that Pace University is woke when it was a completely student run thing. Like they, and they were also like neglecting us and putting roadblocks in our way. So that was, that's a small part of like my experience at Pace. Um, I won't get into the other like nitty gritty experiences, but yeah, that's, that is one example. Um, and it was just very frustrating. And in that moment, it's like, you realize that no matter what, all of the, all of these institutions are rooted in white supremacy and, and capitalism. (laughs) And it's all about making sure that white people stay in power and that they make the most money possible. And those were the only two things that I really took away from being at two different institutions that I would consider very, very different. But those were the similarities is this, and this is, it's flawed everywhere you go because every single institution, and I'm not just saying educational institutions, just every institution is based in white supremacy and capitalism, unfortunately, because we're in America. So yeah, (laughs) that is a long-winded answer to just say that I'm, I think I was naive to think that transferring programs would just fix all my problems because ultimately my skin didn't change (laughs) <laughs> and I'm st- I was st- I was still a person of color walking through a white supremacist world. So I it wasn't going to drastically change and it didn't. So I think I can like give myself a little grace there to say, you know, you it's it's okay to to have had faith or to have had hope that things could be different. Um and it just fueled even more in me that it that I have a responsibility to make things different while I can. Wow, that is definitely a lot. And 
I think it's so important to recognize that, like, because I remember I went to, I think that was the first um, time the Night of Color had ever, like, came. And I was seeing, I was like, whoa, this is incredible. Like, I definitely think that this is something that would be such a groundbreaking thing. But I was under the impression that it was this, this was like a program oriented thing, as opposed to like student created, which is so important because, as you mentioned before, with the head of the performing arts kind of seeing it as like something marketable, that is like completely negating all the experience and all the hard work that you and also other peers have worked to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And it's so important. And like, I really commend how much work you have been doing and trying to fight for a sense of space to let people recognize that this is not like a perfect institution, like the pace performing arts, as much as it is like marketed as like diverse and also very like, like a community, there are a lot of flaws that need to be addressed and not hidden on the down low. I'm a little bit curious, like now that you are a senior on your last year, how is it like taking classes um, with some of these instructors that you've had before that have incited these kind of microaggressions and have caused some harm too. Yeah, I mean, it's been a strange semester so far, definitely. Um, It's like going, it's, it's just like going through the revolution, but also like having to go to school while you're going through it. So um, it, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's pretty challenging. I will say I, the majority of my professors are new, newer professors that I, I hadn't met before. And, um, I'm enjoying class. I'm learning to enjoy it, especially a lot of of it is on zoom. So I have to (laughs) figure out how to really access my education, but yeah, it's been, it has been very frustrating because our program is in a huge transitional shift right now. Um, but not in the way that there is a plan. It is very much in the way of we don't know what to do, or at least I'm not sure what's going on with the administration right now. Um, but, you know, the, we have an interim head right now of our program who is a, a new dean who started just this year. Um, and, you know, a lot of our faculty is new or in flux and then on top of that we're doing this all during a pandemic and so it it definitely doesn't feel like pace mt anymore right it just feels just like another world um and i'm just like taking classes and i'm taking voice lessons online and um i'm still doing a showcase class but ultimately i think i'm probably going to showcase uh virtually so um yeah, it's and then on top of that, I'm still in in CR Truths meetings and figuring out how we can grow our presence and keep momentum in this movement. And I'm I'm one of just a couple current students that's on the leadership team, and so it's a very interesting road to navigate. Um, feeling like I'm like drowning in this program that is pretty much in shambles right now and um, feeling like I still have to get my degree and I still have to make um, my education worth 
that because of the money that my parents are paying, but also putting my all into um, true abolitionist attitudes of this program needs to not 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 be not be reformed but to be abolished and completely rebuilt and you know that's like the cr truth's motto is perform uh, reformative is performative um so yeah i would just say i take it one day at a time <laughs> it's like you know i have to go to these classes and also i'm going to find time for myself and also find time to do the work to help others and yeah, I think it's to to truly have real change in pace performing arts, it's going to take time because um, we don't want just a quick turnaround of, you know, I mean, I think at, at BOCO, they had um, a petition to fire like one teacher because he had said the N-word in class and it was like, bam, like he, and he was fired. And then like, it was like Boko had solved all their problems when like, no, it's actually still rooted in white supremacy. And like all of your leadership structures are deeply flawed still. Um, I mean, every institution's is, but that is not what we wanted. We didn't want just, oh, just fire Amy Rogers. Like that's not the answer. Cause it's not just one person who is the problem. It's the entire system. So I would say that I'm, I'm proud of the work that CR Truths is doing because they're tackling this from a very, very comprehensive um, way of just making sure that every single part of the system is being investigated and dismantled and then rebuilt. So yeah, that was another long-winded <laughs> answer, but I'm doing okay day to day um, at Pace as a senior. I love that. And I know I can resonate with what you're saying. Like there's so many things that are going on, especially with having online classes and Zoom, like Zoom acting. You also have your showcase that you have to deal with as a senior, but also to do that virtually and try to find space as much as you are also trying to do with like social reform. You're also trying to remember to take time for yourself. I think those are really important. And it's like good to give that like a balance and kind of reevaluate from time to time. Um, but I guess we'll first go into talking about identity. What aspects do you find in terms of your identity important to you? And what has shaped a sense of who you are? Obviously, my cultural identity and the culture I grew up with was Chinese and Taiwanese. My dad is from Taiwan and my mom's from China. Yeah. And, um, that's, that's what I grew up with. Although I was born in the States. Um, it, it was a very, there, I'm, there's a very specific experience that comes with being a first generation child of immigrants, um, in America because my childhood is wildly different from my parents' childhood. And so there is a disconnect sometimes of like, I'm the first one to go through this. And, you know, we see in all the movies with white people, like girls can like talk to their mom about, you know, everything because like their mom probably went to the same high school that she's going to now. And um, that's just simply not the case. So I would say 
identity-wise, being Chinese-American and Taiwanese-American are huge to me. And I am, like, clutching very hard onto those aspects of my culture because I don't want to lose them. Um, and I am very, very American, which I don't always love. Um, but I was raised in this country, so I am. And so I... Um, try to immerse myself in those cultures as much as I can. Um, and then also just being a woman in this industry, it ha comes with its own set of hardships. And then um, with the intersectionality of being a woman of color and specifically an East Asian woman who um, is, you know, commonly fetishized or stereotyped. Um, I just feel a strong sense of who I am and who like the authenticity of who I am and making sure that that isn't ever compromised when I like walk into an audition room or even a first rehearsal, making sure that I still stand my ground as um, I'm, I'm, I'm a three-dimensional person that comes with an entire lived experience so please treat me as such. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say those are those are the identities I I really resonate with most. And I'm just curious, how do you find your cultural identity to influence your art and performance when you go into a room? Mm. Sadly, not. It doesn't. It doesn't influence a ton because musical theater is um, is is literally American. It is the one art form that um, people deem like it's American musical theater. And so, you know, it's something I'm working on, but, and it, it's great that like we get this time to work on it. Everything is closed right now. So it's a great time to just reflect on the ways that we do present in the industry because I've been part of like two audition season cycles now in New York City. And a lot of the times it was like me walking in, leaving my culture at the door and coming in as I'm American, I swear, please hire me. Um, and I don't want to do that anymore. You know, if you're going to hire me, it's going to be for the entirety of me and you're going to get Asian bakery snacks in my rehearsals and you know, things like that, like that, that part of me doesn't just go away because I'm doing an American art form. So I would say that's something I'm personally working on is making sure that, um, my culture doesn't get erased when I'm embodying quote unquote, the American musical theater. Um, yeah. And that every character that I do, um, get the opportunity to portray, um, will have aspects of my cultural identity in it. And that is something that I'm working towards so that I don't just erase that really, really integral part of myself in my childhood. It's really important and so fascinating when you mention that musical theater is often coined as a very American thing, because now as I think about it, I think a lot of things in Asia in regards to theater, it's different. The style of there's Chinese operas, but it's different from that. And the kind of experience when you say that really then brings into perspective, like, 
what are the people that we often see in musical theater and what are the stories that are often being told too? Are there specific works um, that you love in terms of musicals you find really inspirational and helps you kind of recognize that yes like I my stories can be also showcased and brought out there there are a couple pieces that I've seen um I the first one that comes to mind is soft power by David Henry Huang um I mean I I don't think any show is perfect and that show is definitely not perfect but it was a a huge step in the right direction in my opinion of First of all, I'm just a huge fan of David Henry Huang because I feel like our lived experiences are so similar. And, you know, just seeing a Chinese-American playwright get so much recognition and representation, um, that has, like, changed everything for me. And I'm so when I did see Soft Power, I, I wept because I was like, wow, that's my lived experience on stage right now. Um, and that's something I've never, ever seen. A Chinese-American musical. <laughs> never. So, yeah, I think Soft Power is the first one that comes to mind. Um, I also think of uh, Cambodian Rock Band, which I I got to see the very last night before it, like, closed because of COVID. Um, so I feel very lucky um, to have seen it. Um, and it was just... Once again, an entirely Asian cast that got to tell a story. It no, it was not American, but it was still um, it was still like such beautiful music and sh- uh, showing these people as complete humans that have personalities, and it's not like their on- their only personality trait is being Asian. Um, so. Yeah, uh, Lauren Yee is also just a genius. So I would say those two works come to mind. There aren't really many out there yet, but I also think that there are so many Asian American um, musical theater writers and playwrights that have been writing for years and have yet to 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 really quote unquote break into the commercial industry because literally because of racism. So I I want to pay homage to those as well because it's not like they're new or anything. They've always been there. And so I have some great... <laughs> I love, like, Melissa Lee and Kit Yan. I love um, Isabella Dawes uh, and uh, Tadaya Sinoki. Um, I hope I didn't... Uh, butcher that. Um, and there's so many more. Ari Afsar, who is a South Asian composer, songwriter, um, and just so many that just deserve, and they're all writing incredible musicals. And I just wish that people would take notice and like give them the opportunity to, to shine the same way that Soft Power got to this past season at the public. So yeah, I think we're well on our way. And that is my biggest takeaway is that they're out there. These these artists are out there. People are just choosing to turn a blind eye to them. And that is what is really frustrating because it's not like, well, like, where's the representation? It's like, no, they're there. You just have to give them the chance. <laughs> I, I think, think I was, I was watching, watching a... I, I think, think it was... It was 
Viola Davis, she was on... Uh, it was the Emmys, I believe. That's when she won an award for How to Get Away with Murder. And she said, I'm going to paraphrase this, but she says there are a lot of these stories that are already here, but a huge part that kind of prevents like women of color or people of color to be able to be shown in on screen or even just in theater too is just like opportunity, like the opportunity for producers to trust the story to like bring it up onto stage. Because yeah, it's so hard and easy to see that like, oh, I don't see any works of representation, but there's actually so much if you go deeper into that. Do you think that there has been more inclusion of Asian American and Pacific Islander like performers and also stories now in 2020? I would say that there is an illusion of more representation. First of all, I want to say that um, when people think of Asian, like people say API a lot. I say API a lot, like Asian Pacific Islander voices and like representation. The first image that comes to mind are East Asians, which are like light-skinned Asians. And a lot of the time, the, the conversation around representation ends there. And there are so there are Southeast Asians and South Asians and Southwest Asians and Pacific Islanders who really have almost no mainstream rep- representation. Um, and I, so I recognize my privilege there when like, when people do think of Asian representation, which isn't very often anyway, they, the only people they think of are East Asians or, or mixed race Asians, right? So it's like, I would say, um, like I said, I feel like there is an illusion of more representation when sometimes it just becomes a little bit still tokenizing. But I will say that personally, like, I'm, I'm trying to think over the last few years. I mean, obviously, Crazy Rich Asians came out. Um, I will say, um, hmm? The Farewell also. Yeah, The Farewell was great. Um, and and Parasite, I wouldn't really put in that category because par- because it's an international film. And I feel like people, I, I obviously was very, very happy when it won the Oscar, but I was like, because everyone, everyone was like, oh my gosh, representation. And I was like, <laughs> no, you, you don't get to say that because it's not an American film. And so don't pat yourself on the back for that. Um, that's an entirely different problem that we have. Um, and then I would say um, just recently this past summer, when Never Have I Ever came out, that was like the most incredible show. I just, I've never seen that many Asian people on screen and also just Asian people from a lot of the diaspora versus just like, you know, if this is a Chinese American story or like this is a Korean story or this is an Indian story. No, like it was like so many. Um, so I feel like, yeah, like if those stories are like given more opportunities to see the light of day, especially in mainstream media, then then I would feel like representation is improving. But it's always hard to tell, right? Because you never know if um, representation there is more representation because there's pressure and people want to be performative and like seem woke, or if it's an actual like deeply thought out like 
conscious decision to to make sure that these stories are being told authentically. So, yeah, I'm not going to give an answer to that one because I don't want to give anybody a cookie for <laughs> for things, quote unquote, improving. This world is still really, really, really flawed, the, the entertainment industry. So we just got to keep going at it. I definitely 100% agree with that. I guess that leads to something that you and also two other people have also created. I call it Zappy, but <laughs> okay, Zappy. Okay, could you tell me a little bit more on Zappy artists and how it kind of came to be, the inspiration and drive to create that? So Zappy artists is it stands for Gen Z Asian Pacific Islander artists, and. Um, it's very funny. My my friend Christine Huang, um, she she like went she went to Ithaca for musical theater and then she dropped out to be to go on the Miss Saigon tour and then it stopped because of COVID. And so, you know, we we were both like in very interesting positions and I remember one day she just texted me and said, um, we wanted to do a, an all Asian production of a musical. And, um, that obviously fell through because of rights and such. Um, and initially we just wanted to start an Asian production company and, um, we, we were going to do that. And then things started erupting over the summer with Black Lives Matter. And we had to sit with ourselves and really think like, we want to make an Asian production company. Sure. But what like how can we actually do more to to make sure that this is yes an asian production company but also to make sure that we are holding ourselves accountable and our community accountable for the ways that we have always contributed to white supremacy and anti-blackness so that just like birthed the idea of of zappy artists because you know, at first it was just two Asian girls who wanted to produce and direct a musical. Like it was very just like out of the blue. And then we started having just really interesting conversations about anti-blackness in our community. And we were like, we should share this information and, and we should like, we should talk to our community because that's another thing about the Asian community is we often isolate ourselves because of our proximity to whiteness there isn't usually like an affinity for asian artists it's like every every man for himself right it's like well i have to make sure that i get into the room and that like my proximity to whiteness will bring me into the room and that like i'll just be the token or whatever um so we wanted to cultivate a community where we could all talk to each other. Um, and that's pretty much how Zappy Artists started. And that's why our mission statement is um, uplifting ourselves, yes, but also holding ourselves accountable. So those are like the main two things. And I always say it's the, the, the line between being an ally and being oppressed. And as Asian people, we are both. We have to be an ally, but we're also oppressed. And how do you navigate that line of 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 that and and to to actually be a true ally while also making sure that your voice isn't suppressed and you're not suppressing your own voice because that is a white supremacist concept is that there is only room for one group. And that is why they're, you know, like the it's like the one ethnic, 
track that people have to fill and then like everybody is pit against each other when that's a white supremacist idea there is room for everybody and we have to make sure that we are creating space for everybody but also holding ourselves accountable for the ways that we contribute to the white supremacy so yeah that's how it was formed and then Sophia Quaja um uh, she she joined the team like two weeks in and she's pretty much a founding member like it was so you know like we really are getting our footing now but we were just like churning out posts because we just had so much to say um and ultimately like we're we're known for like being an educational platform but we were also expanding into you know producing works as well so um yeah, on the down low, there's there's a production in the works of of new new work by um, API composers. So um, that's very very exciting for Zappi. Um, yeah, and I just I'm it's scary. It's definitely scary that I like started a company like during the pandemic, um, and I'm working for free, and like my colleagues are working for free, and we just that like we're just doing this because we love to and this is the work we love to do um but I think um it turned I mean once once like a few of our posts started going viral um I got like really freaked out because I was like oh this is like a real thing that I should like invest my time in and my my brain power in so yeah, now it's just expanding more and more like every single day and we're going to be adding people to our team soon and it's really exciting and I just I I just want to keep advocating for communication within our the the API community because I like I said everyone really isolates themselves and if we just all united and communicated how much could we do like we could do so much we could we could change this industry a lot so yeah that's what zappy artist is i'm i'm really excited about it thank you so much for sharing all that i would say kind of getting to know you and also but not really meeting you in person to like talk with you and say hi i think for me i was like always finding a sense of admiration where i was like oh my god like cindy's doing some really incredible work and also with other people too to see all of these things kind of happen i mean in the pandemic you literally created your own production company with like two other people to see that also garner so much attention we then kind of realized that we're all not alone in our individual experiences similar with how sierra true's kind of came out to be too which is just incredible and i'm just like in awe with all the things that you've done um and it's just amazing so i guess we'll go on to the final ending questions what are some things that have currently been on your mind that you are thinking about right now oof um (laughs) quite a lot i think i'm thinking about this 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 line between allyship and oppression a lot and it's something that comes up every day because of the injustices that are happening um, to the black community in America and that have been happening for 400 plus years. And it's just like now, now people are talking about it. Um, But yeah, I, I have to think about that every day because I think about myself and my race every day, but I also think about the 
immense amount of privilege that I have and that I that I could be using that privilege to help these movements along. And I mean, like CR Truths birthed out of the BLM movement. I mean, all of those experiences were present, but without Black Lives Matter um, gaining traction again this year, CR Truths would not have existed. So yeah, the, the line between allyship and oppression is something that I think about every day and like how that applies to me specifically and what I can do. Um, and then what else is on my mind these days? Um, I would say, um, self-care and mental health are on my mind a lot. Um, I believe that everybody should be in therapy if they can be, um, even the happiest person on earth because um, therapy is not ba- not about talking about your problems. It's about reflecting on your lived experience and seeing how your past is informing your present. So yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that and how I take care of myself during this time when I'm going through everything with Zappy and CR Truths and going to school and, you know, I'm... I'm starting to to help with Broadway for Racial Justice as well. And just like, yeah, I'm just trying to like throw myself at all of these incredible platforms that are gaining traction. And um, I, through all of that, it can be really exhausting day to day. And so I'm working on self-care, like true self-care, not like taking a bath and reading a book. Like that was what we see in the movies, but like, like actually like sitting with myself, being with myself and, you know, treating myself to things and making sure that I'm getting the rest that I need and the nutrients that I need. Um, I've never cared for myself in this way before. And it's something that I'm actively really trying to improve in every day. And, um, yeah, so those are the two things that are mainly on my mind every single day, at least for the past week. <laughs> that's like as far as I can remember right now. <laughs> no, I, I can understand, especially with so much that's been going on. It's so important to take care, even though it feels like, okay, I just need to get all this like work done. I need to get everything like, brought to everyone's attention. You also have to remind yourself to like, take care of yourself. And thank you so much for saying also about therapy. I think that's also like within the Asian community, mental health is really stigmatized in of itself. It's not really about like just for people who are feeling upset about certain things because everyone deserves to have a sense of therapy to reflect on our own individual lived experiences as you said. I guess that leads to my final question. What do you find it is to be acting Asian to you? Oof. I mean, I believe like when when I saw the name of your podcast, I was like, "Oh, and that's me." <laughs> I was like that that encompasses who I am. I'm I'm acting Asian I'm I'm the acting Asian so I I see it as just super fluid it changes every day what it means to be Asian and especially what it means to be Asian in America and I um and then what it means to be an Asian artist it's like there are all of these hyphenates right there's like so there's so many hyphenates to each person like I I'm female I'm 
I'm also Asian and I'm like Chinese and Taiwanese and I'm American and I'm an artist and I want to act and I also want to produce and then I am also I'm interested in things outside of the arts and it's like all of these things are informed by my racial identity because that is how the world is working right now and I'm you know I've learned to embrace it because I I love my cultural identity and my racial identity and so I I think that it changes every day what it means to to be in my shoes um and yeah that's what I'd say (laughs) could you just let us know like are there any upcoming projects or performances for all of us to kind of look out for Yes. So the biggest thing I've been working on um, is the first Sappy Artist Cabaret, which is um, showcasing (laughs) the work of API composers and lyricists, um, all to be performed by API actors and performers. And our entire creative team um, is Asian women. And all of the musicians are Asian. It's like only Asian hands on this project. And it's like, I think a total of 40 people on this project and it's going to be incredible. Um, so that's on the horizon, probably going to stream in late November. So please watch out for that. And, um, all I will say we're raising money during the broadcast for specifically Asian artists for black lives, which is a, an organization that, um, the Asian actors of Hamilton created, in which um, all of the proceeds go to um, several different um, places that need need money, like bail funds and like Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so, yeah, that that's on the horizon. Please keep your eye out um, on the Zappy Artists Instagram page, and you'll you'll get to see all of that. I mean, even before that, you should be looking at our page because we're we're making posts every week um, about being the the Asian experience in America and the difference between oppression and allyship. So that is like the goal of our page. Thank you so much, Cindy. Thank you so much for asking me to be part of this. It's, it's been really great to talk about, you know, each of these aspects of my life, um, in, in like one session, you Mm -hmm. know, I feel like I'm always like living in each of the worlds, but, um, you know, all of these things make up who I am. So Mm -hmm. yeah, thank you so much. It's so cool to see all the things that I've seen, like snippets of like what you've done, but then kind of to see a little bit more tied together. Cindy, you're just such an amazing person. I just like, I can't stress that enough. Such an inspiration. And I'm really glad that I'm like, have the opportunity to be able to hear your stories and your space. Just Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for listening through this extraordinary conversation that I had with Cindy Tai. Please check out CR Trues on Instagram or YouTube. If you have the means to donate, they have a GoFundMe in their links. If you have the time, please leave a lovely review on Apple Podcasts for the Acting Asian Podcast. And I will see you soon for the next episode of Acting Asian. Goodbye.